Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I think it feels a little bit like a free-for-all. Everyone believes they're the best candidate in this primary right now. Vote-by-mail system does have that kind of an impact, right? You don't see candidates take their name off the ballot because there's still a lot of time between when you have to finalize and print. The circumstances that Nick Kristoff is trying to get into this primary with his wild card is fascinating. What I don't know is if Dallas Hurd is actually a Republican candidate for governor or not. No matter who the nominee is, it'll be the most conservative Republican campaign in history because of Betsy Johnson being there. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. We are excited today because we have a friend of the pod returning for, I believe this is his second episode, the third Canope, but the second Reagan Canope. Reagan, welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. How are you? Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me back. So I'm really sorry you guys couldn't get any good guests this week. So I'm happy to fill <laughs> Tuesday night scramble before the Wednesday release deadline. <laughs> Let the record show it is actually a Sunday afternoon and it's nice outside and we're doing a podcast. So let's make this quick, gentlemen. But truly, so the reason why we wanted to have Reagan on was a couple of reasons. But the first one is we want to talk about the governor's race. And for most of the campaign, it feels like the action has been on the Democratic side, like the Nick Kristoff entrance, a lot of big money being raised, and then Betsy Johnson to some degree. But the last couple of weeks, last few weeks, the R side has been, it's becoming increasingly exciting. And I would say unpredictable. There are some some big headlines this week that we'll dive into. But before we get to some specific questions, Reagan, can you kind of outline the landscape of the GOP primary for governor? Yeah, let me just uh, pull up my list of candidates so I don't forget anyone. So I think at the top, you got to start with Bud Pierce. He's the 2016 nominee. And uh, my guess is their campaign would basically say that, look, the all roads lead through Bud Pierce is kind of the headline of a, a memo they distributed in December to uh, major donors, not major donors just of his campaign, but in Oregon. And basically the story is he's the previous nominee. He's got experience. He's running for the office. He's got name ID. He has the ability to self-fund and all the polling shows him ahead because of that strong name ID and that none of the other candidates have a shot because of that. So ahead in the primary, right? Ahead in the primary. Yeah. I think he, nobody has any general election that I'm aware of. And so I think his latest poll, which he published on Catalyst, had him right around 20% in the primary. No one else is in double digits, single digits or below. And that was a December poll that they released. So, you know, he, that ability to self-fund, we don't really know how much he's going to spend, right? I forget what he spent in 2016, but it was pretty significant uh, amount of money. You know, I think it was around $5 million, maybe. Yeah. Um, don't quote me on that. But yeah, wow. so yeah, so that ability to self-fund obviously matters a lot when you need to buy Portland TV and you need to be able to blanket the state with mail. So I would say, you know, Pierce considers himself the front runner. There isn't a lot of evidence yet to dispute that, at least in terms of polling. So then you kind of move to some of the top uh, challengers, the first time candidates. You've got Christine Drazen running pretty, pretty hot out of the gate with the fundraising, especially she's the first candidate to eclipse a million dollars raised in the Republican primary. Has she, she's um, already raised more than a million. She's already, uh, she's already topped a million. Yeah. And I think she's, um, she's got like 800,000 plus on hand. So she hasn't really spent it yet. Some of the candidates are spending a lot of money, but she can't got in late and still has a lot in the bank. Yeah, exactly. And I think I'm trying to see, um, looking for the top packs and fundraising on this cycle. Yeah. So you've got 
Betsy Johnson raising almost $4 million in this cycle, <laughs> right? And she spent almost a million of it, 899000 So she's got 3.6 cash on hand. Nick Kristoff raised 2.7 this cycle. He spent almost a million dollars, but he has 1.7 on hand. And then Tina Kocek raising a million, only having spent 250 k So she's sitting on a um, 9.12, if you include the amount that was in her pack before she declared, right? And then Drazen, who's raised just about the exact amount that Kotech has, about a million this year. And then Stan Pulliam, 962,000 raised. Bud Pierce, 921,000 raised. Tobias Reed, 871,000 raised. Bridget Barton, 592,000 raised. Um, but since I would say you, you talk about Drazen having the momentum on the fundraising side, because since the 1st of January of this year, she's raised $500,000. Next closest is Pulliam at 200, Pierce only 97,000, and Bridget hasn't raised anything this yeah, year. So, Reagan, I have a question. It seems like, I, I mean, one thing, and we talked about this before on the podcast, maybe it was even on your episode, is that a lot of Republicans are excited about the field this year and feel like we have a pretty good shot in terms of capturing the governor's mansion. Do you see, at least kind of from what you're hearing, like there's a lot of big names who are clearly raising a lot of money, which I imagine probably has some donors basically saying, no, you two should drop out or, you know, really the candidate has to be Bud or it has to be Drazen because of X. Are you kind of hearing that chatter in the back end? Like, do you think we might see a big name or two basically drop out before the primary day to kind of coalesce around one candidate? Or do you just think it's kind of more of free for all basically? And, you know, there's going to be a bunch of big names in the primary. Maybe someone's going to win by 20, you know, with 25, 30% of the vote or whatever. I think it feels a little bit like a free-for-all. I don't see anyone getting out. I think there's obviously opportunities for candidates to jump out and then potentially get in with a candidate who has momentum and then become part of, you know, potentially a, a list of someone that they draw from for an appointment to head an agency or something like that if they were to win. But mm-hmm. I don't think that right now anyone, everyone believes they're the best candidate in this primary right now. And so I don't see a lot of people dropping out except for some of the fringe guys. You saw a guy named Jim Huggins who really didn't make a huge impact of the primary out and endorsed Gary McQuiston. So um, the, I think the problem yeah. with that is the like, so the, 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 the most recent example is the presidential race where like Pete Buttigieg and I think like Amy Klobuchar and a few others dropped out right before Super Tuesday endorsed Joe Biden and the rest is history. The problem here is the the deadline to basically take your name out of the voters pamphlet and off the ballot, I think is mid-March, right? So Mm, by mid-March, most people still are going to be able to convince themselves that they have a path to victory. Um, It's Mm. not going to be abundantly clear. Like going into Super Tuesday, I think those candidates knew that they weren't going to be the nominee or it was very unlikely that they would. But I think the problem here is that each one of them will believe that they can win the election still because what, March, April, May you know, two and a half, three months is a long, long enough time, theoretically, although I I, I don't see it that way. I think that's how they will see it. I think um, the vote by mail system does have that kind of an impact, right? You don't see candidates take their name off the ballot because there's still a lot of time between when you have to finalize and print those ballots versus when the election mm-hmm. is, right? And then I think you also have um, just the undecided block just is undecided for so long. The December poll the Bud Pierce release, so half of Republican primary voters that they surveyed were undecided. That's a huge chunk. And so that leaves a lot of space, like you said, Ben, and like you said, Alex, for someone to just convince themselves that they've got a path to victory. Because look at all these um, look at all these undecided people now. If you don't have any money and you don't have any name ID, 
and you don't have a path to raise any money, you should probably take a look and, and say, maybe I'm not going to win any of those undecideds, but you, you can, as a candidate, convince yourself. Well, even the, this is just totally my guess and opinion, not based on any hard evidence here, but even like the candidates who are at a certain percent, like take Bud Pierce's 20%. That's a soft 20%, in my opinion, because that's people who basically remember his name from previous cycles and being like, oh yeah, he's the Republican then, I think I voted for him then. But most of those people probably don't know who Christine Drazen is yet. They haven't seen her TV ads, et cetera. You can move down the line on other candidates. So I think like the polling basically is more of a name recognition poll than uh, like, this is who I'm committed to. Like, I think it's just still too early for people to make that choice. Um, that being said, in that poll, uh, Stan Pulliam comes in at second in, at 8%. Um, okay. I think he was the first candidate. Which is also crazy that second place is 8%. Is 8%, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and think about this. Like, he, I think he's spent quite a bit of money, too, because you said he's raised 900K, and I think he's got, like, 300K or something like that. So a huge percent of his dollars mm-hmm. he spent. Um, he was the first candidate in the race. Um there, there was a crazy story this week. Uh, if you haven't read Willamette Week's coverage, that's probably, they broke the story. I think it was Nigel who broke the story. Yep. And ba- basically, there were there was longstanding rumors that um, Mayor Pulliam and his wife engaged in an open relationship, an open marriage, and were part of what is being called a swingers community um, on social media and in the Portland area. So basically... Nigel calls him, does an interview with him and his wife, and is like, is this true? And they say yes, and that it was like, in the past, it's not happening anymore, and it strengthened their marriage, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a bunch of things to unpack here that, I, like, it's, it's if you look at, you know, or, the Oregonian and William Week and whatever, they'll post on social media, and most of the time, if it's, you know, so, most of the time, if it's a story about, like, you know, a candidate for office, it'll get a few engagements, tons of engagements on this story, as you can imagine. Yeah. So my first question is, like, you've been in working in Republican politics for a long time. You've also worked for, like, some of the more socially conservative organizations, like Oregon Right to Life. Do you think this impacts Pulliam's ability to, uh, to win some of the social conservative voters and or institutional powers that matter in a Republican primary? I'd say on the organizational level, I don't think it's going to impact. I think that they're kind of looking pretty squarely. I mean, they, they supported um, Donald Trump when he ran in, in Oregon uh, for re-election. I don't think they endorsed him the first time. I think they endorsed Ted Cruz. So um, for a group like Oregon Rights to Life, I don't think that they're going to, uh, I think they're going to look at it, but I don't think they're going to take that as the totality of who he is. I think they're going to look at a lot of different uh, stuff and they're going to, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, and, I, and I think that's kind of what they do with all the candidates, right? I don't think they look at anyone as particularly as, as perfect. I would say anecdotally, I've seen two things on social media and the Republican Facebook groups. Um, I'd say a good chunk of the comments uh, are people just saying, so what does this impact his ability to govern? And so that's, I think there's a good chunk of people that really believe that. And I think that might be a transformation of the party post-Trump uh, to some extent. And then there were definitely some comments that, um, that were people who were saying that, that this impacted how they felt about him. But I don't know that those people that were ever necessarily voting for him before, right? They might have already been supportive of other candidates, and so they're taking the opportunity to, to pile on. So I would say in the short term, it doesn't really impact his campaign all that much. I think it's just whether in the long term, can he keep the momentum with the COVID stuff that he had going? 
um, or are other candidates going to kind of come in and take the momentum? Alex, you worked for Trump on the campaign side at the national level. What, what do you think? Yeah, I've, uh, I mean, I've, I think I've been pretty consistent across this as it's kind of come out in the sense of like, uh, well, there's a couple of things here. One, I don't really think that many people would actually care from a voter level, uh, partially because is one of the other campaigns really going to spend millions of dollars doing TV ads and sending out mailers saying, stand engaged in this sort of activity? Uh, well, if he, becomes the, if he becomes the front runner, they might. True. If he becomes the front runner, he probably will. Uh, but again, I, you know, I think Stan can kind of counter that pretty easily in terms of the, uh, I think that what Trump really showed is that if people just kind of go out and own a lot of their, you know, what other people might consider flaws that like at least folks on the GOP side are sort of willing to overlook it kind of on the voter level uh, where I think this is going to hurt Stan a lot more on probably frankly, the more important level for his, where his campaign is at is like on the donor side of things, because uh, you know, there's not that many big donors in Oregon. Uh, everybody's hitting them up. And I think basically what the other campaigns can probably say about Stan is like, okay, this may have come out and maybe you don't even think it's that bad, but what else is there hiding behind the curtain? Uh, and I think that that sort of like mysteriousness uh, is probably more off-putting for uh, big donors who are either more socially conservative or even more establishment, right? In terms of like, okay, this come this came out of the closet. Like, what's a little bit deeper under the covers as well? Uh, and of course, if Stan doesn't have access to big money, then he can't get out his message, get up his name ID, and things like that. So I think that's kind of the overlooked thing in all of this. Like, I mean. Again, not that many people actually will probably see this article or even know that this sort of thing will happen, at least in the primary right now. Uh, but I think that it's really worrying for him from like the big donor sort of like political back office side of things. Let me let me ask a philosophical question before we move on here. Should do you think it should matter? Like, should it matter? Should should it be should it be considered relevant for both media and for voters and for institutions to consider whether or not he had an oath? Like the reason why I bring it up is like, obviously I'm gay. So there was a time where like being a gay candidate was like the death knell for a politician. Like, you know, people get outed and then they lose or whatever, which is not the same thing. Um, but it's in the same zip code as uh, what happened to Stan. So I'm, I guess I'm curious if, if you, either of you have thoughts on like, like, should this be relevant? Should this be part of the the discourse? As two married men. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Mr. Political Analysis. Well, yeah, being straight and have only engaged in um, straight things, uh, it's difficult to say <laughs> for sure. But um, I would have to say that I don't... <clears throat> I don't know what's the right answer for that. I think generally my view is like voters should just get the most information possible. And so if the media is going to cover something, it's up to the candidate whether or not they want to respond to it. And that's up to the voters to decide what they want to do with it. And that's just kind of the way we are. I think we kind of live in this culture now where pretty much everything um, is out there now. You can't really do anything, especially online, without having the idea that it's going to come out somehow. Right. So um, it's just, you know, candidates will have to continue to be careful and or as upfront as they can be um, if they want to make sure it's not going to end up being a liability for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, once you become a public official, it seems like your life isn't, isn't really that much, isn't private anymore. So I think that's just kind of where we're at at this point. Yeah. And I, I honestly think it, uh, well, I mean, philosophically is one thing, but like, 
I think it just matters less and less as the years go on. Uh, and the sort of generation that I'm the most afraid for in terms of engaging with politics is not actually millennials, because I think we just kind of missed the crux a little bit in privacy. But like, when Zoomers, and, and by me referring to Zoomers, <laughs> I think it's people who were born in 98 through 2010. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be wild of what comes out about them uh, because they're like engaging on TikTok. They're all over Snapchat. They're all over Instagram, literally all of the time. Uh, from the time course, they're like, in, from the time they're in middle school, right? Like they're like their whole developmental years are, you know, stuck online forever, basically. Yeah. And I remember there was like some sort of singer or something. And she said something racist that she had to apologize for. And she was literally nine years old when she said this. And she was like, Oh my gosh. And I'm like, so sorry for like making this like racial slur. And I was like, yeah, like nine-year-olds are just stupid and like say stupid stuff. Like that's bound to happen. But I mean, all of this stuff is just living permanently now. So I, I agree with Reagan that like, I think basically kind of as everything just starts to come out about anybody who runs for office that uh, it's not like it doesn't matter, but I think it starts to matter a little bit less over time, right? Whereas like if something like this came out in like 2005, like you're probably just done. Uh, but I think even in 2020, which is, you know, literally only 15, 16, 2021, 15, 16 years later, like it just starts to matter less and less. The, the interesting thing about this too is like, if the equivalent of this would have happened in 2005 or whatever, the response from Pulliam would be like, I am so sorry. I made a mistake. Like, you know, I failed my family. I hope that voters will forgive me. But that is not the message this time. The message this time was like, yeah, I did this and it was good for my marriage. And I'm glad that we did it. Um, there, the, 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 the thing that, I mean, this is like, it, it, we're getting, I don't want to get too deep here, but he denies in the Willamette Week article being bisexual, which was one of the claims of um, whoever it was that like, leak this it seemed like it was someone who was in the community with him although that isn't necessarily true it could have been anyone um but then that that would bring a whole new dynamic right like if it comes out that like he is bisexual or lgbt in some way like i think that is a very different thing to a primary but like i still believe there's a lot of republican voters who are not comfortable with um lgbt issues um and so that's what i was kind of like i you all know much more about the right than I do, but I, I think I, of the three of us, think that there's most likely to be some harm among voters from this revelation um, because of, although Trump, I guess, is a great counterargument. Um, so anyway, any closing thoughts on Stan before we move on? Alex, do you remember the guy in South Carolina who made a comeback to her from like governor or something after he like had a mistress and then Mark ran Sanford. for Congress and won. Mark Sanford, yeah. yeah. And and the reason he got <laughs> defeated, I think the most recent time was not because of any of his past misdoings, but because he was like not enough with Donald Trump he on some issues or something. <laughs> yeah, he, he, was was an anti, he was an anti-Trump small tax guy or something like that. I mean, like, I think that's kind of the new place we are in the Republican primary, right? Where it's like, yeah, we're, technically the social conservative party but that really just means like abortion and then the other like social issues which is kind of more now kind of shifted to immigration and other issues like that right it's like don't change the way society is anymore social conservatives not like you know i don't know what a better way to describe it but it, it's i think a lot of it's more abortion and then related to immigration policy and stuff like that it has a lot less to do with marriage policy and I don't know that, like you said, Ben, I think there's still a lot of voters that aren't personally comfortable 
with that or with where the country is, but they're not voting based on it very much anymore. Um, fair point. So, right, because you don't see it, you don't see marriage and, and traditional marriage at the top of polls anymore. And so I think we'd say kind of that issue is over, but those voters are still there and maybe they have the same opinions about marriage. So maybe that's where it would impact polling is if that someone's, you know, keeping that issue at the top of their list and just not telling pollsters about it, right? Uh, and I had a chance to get into the the article with them, but when I briefly touched base with them about like what, why do they think they're going to win? They basically said they're the only campaign that isn't afraid to be conservative. And so he's talking about how, um, you know, the there was fraud in the election and how we need to end right. the fraud in the election. Um, and how he said, you know, we may not, not know the outcome of the 2020 election, which is pretty um, close to the talking points that the Trump campaign has. Which uh, I don't Trump- think, yeah. I mean, I don't want to, we, we could probably go on for that to me was the most that uh, the idea that this continues to be a talking point without any evidence, despite the fact that all these, they lose all the court cases, all the audits that are done by the Republicans, like turn up nothing that it continues to be like, I guess that's a, that's a gamble that, that Stan is making um, that voters will respond to that. Like is, is, does that is there evidence that suggests that that actually is going to matter for primary voters? If you ask a state Republican legislator what their county Republicans want to talk about at their party meetings, it's election fraud. And so I think that there's a there's a group of people who are obviously very active who care about that. And I think that that's informed where the polling campaign has gone in their conservative uh, lane here. I don't know. I don't think you've seen voters in Oregon really handle that in a Republican primary before. So if this is kind of, you'll, I guess we'll see, you know, this primary, this governor's primary may be a referendum on the Trump election in terms of, you know, you have a couple of candidates, probably I, I haven't talked to the McQuiston campaign, so I'm not sure where they're at. Um, the Barton campaign has said there's election fraud and we need to get to the bottom of it. So you have the camps that are, and then you have, uh, you know, I think, you know, Drazen said Biden won. I don't think Pierce was available to comment, but I would guess he's more in the Biden one camp he, than the he, fraud camp. He did come back and say that Biden won. Okay. I didn't, I didn't see that. So yeah. So I think you might have a kind of a referendum there. And I think that's what they're saying about not afraid to be conservative, right? They're not afraid to go right where Trump is in the party and, and not afraid to talk about Trump. Whereas you see most Republicans in Oregon not dealing with him because he has ever, has never been popular um, except for one clout poll where they said that he was going to beat uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 in Oregon. And, <laughs> oh, hey, Reagan, um, Reagan. Which is completely uh, made up. According to a recent poll, uh, Trump yeah. is actually more popular than Kate Brown. So, uh, you know, the, True. Unfortunately, the MAGA 2024 to... in Oregon. Right. And maybe that's what Pulliam <laughs> is banking on is basically now Trump is Trumpism is more popular than Kate Brown. And so if he makes it a referendum, on, I'm Stan Pulliam and I support Trump policies and Tina Kotek is or Nick Kristoff or whoever is Kate Brown, then maybe I can win. Especially with Betsy Johnson, they are kind of in the middle um, messing around. Um, okay, so so that's a little bit of a uh, state of the race on the Republican side. Um, the Democratic side, uh, I also find fascinating this cycle. So the basic dynamic is you've got Speaker Tina Kotek, who has uh, resigned from her position as Speaker to run full-time for governor. You've got State Treasurer Tobias Reed, uh, who obviously gets to keep his position as treasurer, and I believe he's midterm as well, but also termed out, so he can't run for re-election in two years. Um, and then you've got the wild card, which is uh, Nick Kristoff. Um, and uh, so, so the major major points for us to discuss here. So obviously, Shamia Fagan, the Oregon Secretary of State, um, 
has ruled that Kristoff is ineligible to run for governor based on his based on residency status. That is before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will make the final decision uh, about whether he gets to be on the ballot or off. Uh, I have no inside knowledge or <laughs> any idea how that's going to fall. Do either of you have any sense of conventional wisdom on how to approach this? I've heard I've heard basically two schools of thought. One is that um, the Supreme Court is most likely, and Reagan, you might have actually said this, the Supreme Court is most likely to uphold what the agency has done if they've followed their processes or something like that. And the second being the Supreme Court is likely to defer to voters and have a broad interpretation like past secretaries of state in terms of if if it if we're not sure if they're eligible or not, we'll defer to inclusion and let voters to decide. Um, what is what is your take on the Kristoff situation? Reagan, we'll start with you. Yeah, I, I would agree with, uh, I believe you did represent my position, which is basically that it seems like on political issues, they're going to defer to the legislature, they're deferring to agencies on issues like this, which are basically political questions, right, um, to some extent. It, does, um, it, is so it doesn't feel like a political question, I understand that, and, but I think I think the other thing you have to, the, the question that just popped into my mind is, would Shamia Fagan handle this differently? if this were a BIPOC candidate with the exact same residency background? And I think that mm. the answer is yes. And so I think that, I don't know if that'll inform the court or how they handle it. I don't think that Nick Kristoff is, uh, you know, trying to trudge up any, <laughs> trying to find anything in his heritage that isn't white. But I think, it, I think it is, you're right. It's basically like, does the agency, is the agency right in denying him or do we just defer to them in their interpretation of the rules? Because that's mostly their job. Or do we just say the goal of this is just to be open and that it's kind of silly that we have this, you know, really hard and fast requirement of three-year residency? Which I like, I actually don't. So Christoph's legal team wrote a very detailed submission to the Supreme Court. And I believe one of the, one of the, um, not allegations, but one of their statements of fact is that the origins of this residency requirement are in fact like racist and xenophobic um, and that it was, it's a constitutional provision that I think was created, if not at the constitutional convention, you know, long, long before today um, when we were a pretty deeply racist state. But on the other hand, does that matter <laughs> if, you're, if you're doing a legal interpretation of what the constitution says in terms of eligibility? Um, the, the, to me, or, or Titus, did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not even going to pretend like I understand the legal semantics because <laughs> I, I, you know, we, we can obviously all do fake commentary about some things, but that's one thing where I'm just like, I, I have absolutely no idea. What's <laughs> uh, refreshing, now, refreshing. <laughs> someone who admits they're not, they don't know anything about something. You know? uh, but I will say, I really hope that he is allowed to be included uh, I mean, I think that, and again, I understand the trade-off of saying, you know, we're basically saying, yes, these are the requirements. We're sorry in terms of like, you can't get on the ballot because like, this is what the requirements are. But I mean, I also just think it's ridiculous that, right, like someone who is, uh, I wouldn't even say, I mean, I guess you could call him a national figure. Uh, maybe that's not right because like, I don't think your average person knows who Nick Kristoff is, but like I think a lot a of very- figure. Yeah, he's yeah. A, I mean, I, I I think it's personally fair to call him a national figure. I even think it's fair to call him an international figure in some ways. Yeah, he's raised like almost three million dollars. I mean, I think his last report was like two point seven or whatever. He's probably raised more money since. Like, I think it's insane that you know someone owns property in the state. Like, I, I just think it's insane, basically, like that someone like that couldn't be included. 
uh, or like, frankly, anyone, if they just want to decide to run for governor and that. I mean, I just think that voters should be able to uh, decide those issues on their own. And like, if they don't think he's a resident, they're not going to elect him. And maybe they don't even care, right? They just think his whatever his policies or his leadership that he's putting forward are better than the other candidates. So his, uh, I his really hope he's allowed forward, to be His brief, sorry, Alex, his brief put forward a lot of scenarios by which you would want to defer to someone, someone who's, you know, a teenager who's spending time between, uh, you know, his mom and his dad's house, uh, you know, someone who's caregiving for their parent or some other older person that's important to them, right? But that's not his situation. His situation is he had an excellent job at the New York Times. He owns a farm in Yamhill County. And so I think that the idea of the three-year residency is probably not one that most people care about, but the circumstances by which he's attempting to avoid or skirt it or get past it is preventing him from doing that. Because, I mean, you saw the quotes from Tobias Reed, which was basically like, you know, he's a rich guy from New York trying to muscle his way into the Democratic primary. And when you say rich New Yorker, everyone goes Donald Trump. And so it was like they were attacking him for basically taking okay, this I, I didn't even think position. about that. That was, that was really smart messaging. No, because, yeah, <laughs> he basically said he's attacking our election officials and he's a rich guy from New York. Like his point was he's acting like Donald Trump. He just didn't say it, right? And so like I think mm-hmm. by the circumstances that Nick Kristoff is trying to get into this primary with his uh, wild card hair, is is fascinating um and i think it's a it's really interesting problem for basically democrats to grapple with republicans have no influence you've got literally all kate brown appointed supreme court judges the democrat secretary no literally all the last one who was appointed by kitzhopper just resigned she has appointed the entire state she's entire she's appointed the entire oregon state supreme court all wow. seven members. That is bomb. Can members. you imagine? Can you imagine that on the federal level? Of like what? what like just literally, Trump, Trump appointed <laughs> every single judge. All of nine them. no decisions, man. It was unanimous. <laughs> well, I want to thank you both for not um, referring to the New York Times as the failing New York Times that showed tremendous restraint and kindness from you both. <laughs> Hey, they um, just bought Wordle, so I have to be nice so they don't ruin my favorite game. <laughs> um, okay, so well, Ben, what are, what are you hearing on kind of the Democratic side of things, or what's what's your general take on on what's happening? I mean, everyone's waiting to see what happens with the Supreme Court case. Literally decides everything, essentially, right? Like, if Kristoff yeah. is in the race, he—I don't know if it's fair to call him a favorite. I think Kotek is still probably the favorite, but he, like, no one—I don't think anyone would be surprised if he wins, right? When you have that kind of money. Um, and the narrative he's got. And, uh, you know, I think like you, you can imagine a deeply competitive campaign where he could win. Like there's, there's definitely people who think Kotech still beats him, but I think a lot of people would assume he would probably get second place. Now, if he's out of the race, um, A, I think it's be- the best news is for Tina Kotech because um, mm-hmm. I don't think Treasure Reed is competing for some of the the endorsements and dollars that Kotek and Kristoff might be, which Kotek candidly is winning most. Like Kotek got in the last couple of weeks has been endorsed by Planned Parenthood, Pro-Choice Oregon, the Mother Pack, and you know every labor union that's weighed in so far, except for UFCW, which is the largest private sector labor union, which went with Kristoff. So with Kristoff out of the race, it really opens things up for for Kotech and importantly, probably means that she doesn't have to spend as much money in a primary, um, mm-hmm. which could be actually a very big deal when you're talking about Betsy Johnson 
and you know Christine Drazen potentially or Bud Pierce in a general. It also perhaps creates a lane for Treasure Reed to re-enter if there's like to the extent that there are Kristoff voters, if they're disaffected and feel like he was treated unfairly, or you know, if they buy into Kristoff's narrative, um, they likely will find more commonality with Tobias Reed than they will with um Tina Kotek. Uh, just because Kotek's been in leadership. I mean, interestingly, Reed has actually gone increasingly negative over the last couple of weeks. He, the quote that Reagan was referring to is, this is from, this is from one of his newsletters. The Secretary of State, this is a quote, the Secretary of State issued the ruling and Kristoff has every right to challenge it. However, attacking the process with conspir conspiracies is beyond the pale. I can think of another out of touch New Yorker who does the same thing. Um, so that is what he's saying about um, Kristoff. And then about Kotek, um, we talked on this um, podcast with uh, Angela Wilhelms about the Intel manufacturing plant going to Ohio. Tobias mm -hmm. Reed wrote an op-ed that essentially lays the blame on Tina Kotek for not keeping Intel in Oregon. Um, so fascinating to see what will happen. But I think like really the most important, when, when this election is, is over, the most important moment will have been this Supreme Court decision to determine the election. I, um, I have one question about you on, on the Dem side, which I thought was so interesting from Treasurer Reed was, I don't, I don't know if it was just a press release or if it was an email, but when he attacked the Portland Public Schools Union for right. a four day uh, work week or whatever, to me, I had read that and I was like, because I, I basically think that if Tobias is to win the primary, that like he, he, the election's basically over. Like, I just think he's uh, relatively moderate on the right issues or at least like messaging moderately. Like, I, I just don't see anyone on the Republican side beating him. Uh, but that to me seemed like a death knell in the Democratic primary. It was like a shot directly at the teachers unions, which of course, uh, everybody in the GOP is like the teachers unions are like literally the most powerful thing across the entire country. Uh, what, Wait, it's what more complicated. It's more complicated. Oh, than no, no, no. I know it's more complicated yeah. than that. I'm just saying from like our perspective, yeah, like yeah. Well, from your perspective as a Democrat, was that shocking? Because to me, it, it was particularly shocking. Um, I don't think shocking is the right word, because if you look at what Treasure Reed is trying to do is, I mean, he's trying to tap into the COVID anxiety among parents. He's trying to paint himself as someone who is going to have a vision for a post-COVID Oregon. That being said, I think what it, what, it, what it told me was that he's not competing for the OEA endorsement. He basically mm -hmm. presumed that he wasn't gonna win that endorsement because I think you're right. I think after, after that, it was probably a non-starter for most, for most folks in OEA. Yeah, so that, I'll, I'll just leave it there. Reagan, you have some misinformation, correct? What did I screw up? No, uh, it was me. So I said that okay. Kate Brown has appointed all the judges. So I thought that um, Thomas Balmer had left the bench, but he had not. So Martha Walters was appointed by Kungowski and Thomas Balmer was appointed by Kitzhopper. So she's appointed five of, of the seven, I think is the number. Okay. This, this podcast is rife with fake news. <laughs> but um, interesting. So did Kate Brown nominate Martha Walters as chief justice? Yes, because it's a six-year term and then you can't re-up, I think is what I read. So you you have to have a new chief justice every six years. Oh, the chief. I justice, think that's what it was. The chief justice's term. We need we need some live fact checking here. <laughs> the I, I'm, I'm checking out right now. By the way, before we finish up, I need to pivot back to the Republican primary. Yeah. For a couple of things. So we had um, 
over the weekend, there was a Republican, uh, Oregon Republican Party Central Committee meeting. And basically what it is, the chair, the vice chair and the delegates from every county Republican Party. And we only have 34 operating counties. I think there's there's a couple counties that don't have uh, functioning Republican parties. Yeah, it's it's Multnomah County, actually, I think. I'm just kidding. Uh, well, they've had they have a split delegation. They claim that one delegation is legit and the other delegation is not. It's really complicated. But um, just like how we have two libertarian parties in the state of Oregon that both claim to be the only real libertarian party. Anyway, so at this meeting of you know maybe 111 Republican delegates, um, on the agenda was whether or not we'd open our primary to non-affiliated voters. And so what we would do is we'd allow a process whereby a non-affiliated person can, um, according to the law, it was, or the way the resolution was worded is make a written request for a ballot. So presumably the secretary of state creates a form that allows a non-affiliated voter to request a Republican ballot, or actually I think it was at the county level. So the local- By the way, no one would do that. So that was basically- So- and yeah, and that was basically the argument that happened. They said, oh, this would be uh, basically a, an olive branch is what Dallas heard, the chair of the Oregon Republican Party called it to non-affiliated voters. And the response was basically that um, a lot of voters thought that if they wanted to vote, if non-affiliated voters want to vote Republican, they can just change their party, which is true. You can go online and switch your party. And so it was voted down. And then after that, Dallas Heard apparently requested that the Oregon Republican Party basically release him via resolution uh, from the chairmanship uh, in order to run for governor. And I was told that it was basically that he was requesting that this, you know, the 78 percent that elected him to the chairmanship, that he get at least that percentage in order to you know, show that the party supports him for governor. Wait, sorry, Reagan, just, just to confirm something you had said. Yeah. He, he put forward this resolution. It was not someone else. Uh, I, he may have requested someone else or someone else brought the motion. I don't have all of the exact but, but, details but he, in front of me. He, he, but did, basically, he did support it, though. Yeah, yeah. He was basically saying, okay. look, I would Very like to be a candidate for governor, and I want the support of the Oregon Republican Party faithful, right? And wow. okay. the it seemed like basically after the not, he brought the non-affiliated uh, primary resolution up that the room had essentially turned on him. And so they were not wow. really interested in hearing him uh, make his pitch to run for governor. And since he was just elected as the chair and this is his first term, right? So there was a lot of pushback. So they didn't even vote on the resolution. They tabled it. And uh, so they're not going to move forward with it. So what I don't know is if Dallas Heard is actually a Republican candidate for governor or not. That really remains to be seen. There was an image circulating through Republican um, primary or Republican groups on Facebook attacking him for having missed a lot of votes um, over the last session on uh, there. There was a pro-life bill. There was some bills about veterans and there were some bills about cops uh, that he either voted no or missed. Um, the votes on. And so I think there are people that were expecting him to enter the primary, but maybe expecting that he was going to get that support from the central committee. So we really don't know if Dallas is a candidate or not. And he has said on multiple occasions, I've heard him say this in large groups, that he is not very tech savvy. So he doesn't really communicate via his Facebook page very often. 
he's a very one-to-one communicator. He doesn't really have a communications team on the state Senate campaign side. So he only has the Oregon Republican Party communications team and then his staff in the legislature. So like it could be a while before we know if he actually intends to run or not. Um, so it's super interesting just kind of watch that unfold. So my first reaction to that is that that would be terrible news for Stan Pulliam. Because if Stan Pulliam's goal is to like own the Trump lane, um, that would be exactly where Dallas tries to situate himself, I'm sure. Well, and if they take those talking points from that image that was going out, if that if that's the attack line that they're using, I think... Dallas is basically going to say he's the only person that cares for working men and women. Like he says this all the time. Like he's even, mm-hmm. he's even intimated that a lot of the Republicans in Salem are bought and sold by the major corporations and interest groups and that they don't care about working people. Right. So if Dallas is saying he's the only true conservative and that image that, you know, is attacking him on cops and veterans and, and not being pro-life enough, I think the point of a polyam or another campaign like Carrie McQuiston would basically be that he's bad at being uh, the only true conservative in the in the race, right? So it, I think it'd be super interesting to see him enter, but I think it would mix up um, the primary a lot. And you know, I don't know if if how big is that conservative lane, right? If you look at the CD two primary, the conservative, you know, the moderate lane was pretty small. Uh, if you look at Bueller as kind of the the primary moderate, and maybe. Atkinson, Atkinson a little bit Atkinson, as an yeah. adjacent moderate and the conservative if you're talking Crumpacker and Bence was a pretty big chunk of that primary um, but you didn't have anything really happen uh, west of I-5 in that primary right so you do have well, a lot of maybe it, the more would, liberal Republican voters I also wonder Bence is an interesting figure because Bence is kind of like a Rorschach test I feel like I feel like like a moderate could see him as as like oh he's a de- he's a deal maker he gets things done like and he obviously made a strong pitch as a as a conservative um mm-hmm. so that's a, that isn't that's an interesting but there's no one maybe ugh, does anyone have that kind of a crossover appeal so I, mean, I i actually i have a take that's different than both of you that i think okay. that you'll both go for that, it. that you'll both disagree with uh on dallas and i, I take some already. of this <laughs> <laughs> i take some of this actually ben from when he came on our podcast was like uh, Dallas is really interesting in the way that he speaks because uh, you're totally right, Reagan. Like he did harp on that working class piece a lot and that like a lot of both the Dems and the GOP are paid for by big business. Like it, it is actually, I don't even want to call it Trumpian in the sense of like, he's just like trying to imitate Trump. But like, I think he actually really do, does believe that and that people find it authentic. But the other thing he tried to show too, and I think he's sort of, I mean, it sounds like he kind of showed this too with the resolution is like, Dallas has a big thing for like unity and like unifying the state. Uh, and I don't necessarily think, you know, someone in Ben's district would see it the same way. Uh, that like that's what Dallas is trying to do with his policies. <laughs> but like, I, I'm actually curious if he would run a little bit in that lane too, in terms of like, I'm going to bring people from across the aisle to like support like a clear working class conservative vision for Orkin. I think you two will probably both disagree with that. But he talks like that a lot, which I find really interesting because most people say like, oh, he's the most bombastic guy ever and all this sort of stuff. But like a lot of his language is about like unity and unifying and like one direction forward. 
despite what you might think kind of like in terms of the actual. Well, wait, wait, wait. His language is like that sometimes, but he's also the guy who goes to some of these rallies and calls the people he works with fools and morons. Um, I think he's used the word traitor. He gets kicked off the floor of the Senate because he's the only one in the building who won't wear a mask. Like That's not true. He, there's other people in the building that didn't wear masks this most recent session, but, wait, um, wait, but other le- he's wait, the high wait, wait, profile. Other legislators? I saw a tweet that said that uh, Werner Reschke popped in to vote without a mask okay. um, from a well, journalist, but but he's the one that makes the most big. He makes a big deal about it, right? But right. so here's the here's the other thing. Not to cut you off too much, Ben, but I no. agree with you, Alex, in the sense that like his goal is not. He's not a guy that is purely partisan. He's not R versus D, right? Because the non-affiliated thing really proves that he wants to get as many crossover people. He is very populist, I think. And so mm. if you're somebody in a position of power, he's almost preset on hating you and who you are and everything you're about. And if you run a major corporation or have influence at a major corporation, um, he's going to dislike you as well. I think, you know, uh, I had a, a lobbyist tell me uh, or I had heard that there were uh, lobbyists saying that there was a rumor that uh, Dallas Heard was moving to Texas. And I immediately knew it was wrong because he doesn't talk to anybody in the lobby. Uh, <laughs> you know, lobbyists know they can't get anywhere with him. so. Uh, for the most part. So I think that what you see is him attacking the leadership and the elected and the powerful people in Oregon in an attempt to rally the people who are the everyday Oregonians. And so he doesn't really care if they're Democrats or they're liberal or if they're Republican or if they're conservative, if they're not affiliated and they're all over the place. He just wants their vote to throw out the bums essentially, right? And so that's all of his messaging. So I think, Alex, to some extent, you're right. He's not purely partisan. He's focused on, uh, you know, he sees basically everyone who, uh, you know, I think you get along with Karl Marx in the sense that he sees everyone who's <laughs> who's running this state as oppressors and that, you know, the workers need to rise up. And, and I don't know, I don't think that he's a big seize the production guy, but, you know, at least <laughs> <laughs> throw off the shackles of capitalism. Um. All right. It is. Uh... We've we've taken a lot of time. There's a lot to cover in the governor's race. Um, yep. Okay. So for the final section of our conversation, we want to talk about the the Betsy Johnson dynamic, the general election dynamic. So to get us started here, I want to read um, some tweets from John Horvick, who is one of the top pollsters in Oregon. He works for <clears throat> DHM, and uh, they they just released this poll this week. And here's a few highlights: in a generic ballot test among just Democrats and Republicans. Uh, or with just a Democrat and just a Republican on the ballot, a Democrat leads by nine points, about what you would expect in Oregon. When Johnson is added without any description of her, she is third at 11%. Uh, The Democrat maintains their advantage in first place by uh, exactly nine points. When presented with a description of Johnson from her campaign website, so how Betsy describes herself, Johnson catapults into first place in the poll with 30%. Uh, the Democrat, the generic Democrat is in second at 24%. The Republican is in third at 17%. And then 30% of the electorate doesn't know what they would do. Fair point, um, 30% of the electorate who doesn't know what they would do. Uh, when provided a state, when voters are provided a statement that Johnson is pro-choice and often voted with Democrats on social issues and often- but is considered with- a centrist. <laughs> right, and often voted with Republicans on economic and environmental issues. She falls back into third place where she started, Democrats at 29, Republicans to 22, and Johnson to 21%. Uh, and then finally, Wild. 
when provided with a statement about who is funding Johnson campaign, Johnson's campaign, um, you know, large donors, the results catapult back to where they started in the first place. 30% Democrats, 22% Republicans, 17% for Johnson. Reagan, help us make sense of this poll. What does it mean? Uh, what do you take away from it? So when I as a when I was a consultant and I paid for polling like this, it cost you know anywhere between ten and fifteen thousand dollars. And for the low rate of seven thousand five hundred dollars, I could tell you that Betsy Johnson would be super popular if you gave her a great bio, and <laughs> that if you said she was owned by corporations, no one would vote for her, and that she draws equally from Republicans and Democrats running a centrist campaign. Goodness gracious. I mean, this some of the work that DHM does is good, but this this is a piece of garbage on paper to me. So I have um, a different I actually have a very different take from this, which is basically like, and this is this is what I've drafted in the liftoff, although your harshness, maybe I need to scale it back a little bit. Uh the reason why I think this is important is because it perfectly tells you. I mean, you're you're right in that this wasn't novel beforehand, but it confirms some assumptions, which is basically like it provides the playbook for how these three groups of parties, uh, for lack of a better term, will be framing the election and will be framing the candidates the election. Yeah. And it shows what will happen depending on who wins the narrative battle, which has to do with yes. money, which has to do with how compelling the message is, et cetera. Um, so yeah, in some ways it's confirming what I think most of us already thought we knew, but I think it is like, so if I'm Betsy Johnson, I guess my takeaway from the poll is like, well, I'm going to need to raise way more money than everybody else. So my message drowns everyone else out. Um, and I guess that's probably, that is probably the practical usage of the poll for, for her. And I'm not sure if I'm a Democrat, if I'm, a, I think we, the way I've been framing it is like, if I'm a Democrat running in a three-way race with Betsy and say, um, Christine Drazen, like you basically say, Democrat in color votes like this. And then in black and white, here are the things that that Betsy and Christine Drazen agree on. And yep. then the, re the Republican does the reverse, right? The Republican yep. says, here's what I do. And here's the, all the things that Betsy and Tina Kotek agree on. Um, and that's kind of basically, the poll is basically saying whoever is loudest and whoever's message resonates most strongly with voters wins. So Except I think, you know, I, I'm still a skeptic that Republicans win the gubernatorial election, but I will say this. Looking at this again, I would say that I think that Dem Republicans have a small advantage because you can still point to the fact that Betsy Johnson, until this race, was a lifelong Democrat. And I think that that matters. And you can you can point to say, oh, on social issues, locked in, right? And you can just avoid some of the environmental and economic stuff. And I mean, she votes with Democrats pretty high percentage of the time because most of the stuff that's moving, she's not voting against because if she if it were if she was killing it republicans would have already defeated it they just need her additional vote right and that's what happened a lot i worked the legislature in the 2013 session 16 democrats one of whom is betsy johnson 14 republicans and so as long as republicans locked up and agreed with betsy johnson that bill was dead and they brought a couple things to the floor that they killed but most of it was dead before it even hit the floor right and so the actual voting percentages, because we have a system where the leadership only brings bills up that they either either A, know we're going to pass, or B, need to get a vote on because the interest group or whoever is bringing it really wants to make this point, right, which is when you have a bill. That's the only reason you have a bill that's dead come to the floor is if they want to get people on the record on it to go kill them in some campaigns next year, right? 
And so, so you really have very few votes where Johnson breaks with Democrats. So you can point to her voting record percentage basis and the fact that she's a lifelong Democrat. And you can really drive home the idea that, that she's uh, a Democrat and say that you're on the stage with two Democrats. And I think that gives the Republican nominee and, and in my general uh, conversations with these gubernatorial campaigns, they admit it allows them to be a little more freely conservative having what they call essentially two Democrats in the race. And so I think you'll you'll see one of the most, no matter who the nominee is, it'll be the most conservative Republican campaign in history because of Betsy Johnson being there. Interesting. Titus, what do you make of the fact that in literally no scenario, according to DHM, do Republicans earn more than 22% of the vote in this poll? <laughs> Very sad. Very, very sad. Uh, <laughs> but would DHM have been right about the Virginia governor's race? They would have had Terry McAuliffe on top, and you know it, Ben. This, I, I actually don't look, know. Any, I mean, I mean, look, probably. I, uh, my, I think I'm, every pollster except for the Trafalgar group or whatever right. it is that that is the 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 kind of Trumpian pollster had had McAuliffe ahead, right? So, I want to say their house effects probably a little pro dem. I mean, look, the, the, the thing about this is, uh, and one of my bosses is probably one of the, my old boss, not current boss, uh, was one of the most influential uh, pollsters, GOP consulting companies in the country. And the one thing he said about polling that always stuck with me is like, polling is a snapshot in time and that is it, right? And we are, you know, nine months out from election day today. So, I mean, I think that uh, the polls are fun because they create some chatter, but uh, right. I don't really think they mean anything until we know who the actual candidates are. Uh, I think that the bigger thing for Betsy is the, uh, which we haven't talked about yet, but is the Phil Knight factor. So mm -hmm. just the other day, or maybe a week ago, because Reagan said, quote, how did you not know that happened, Alex? Uh, <laughs> Phil Knight wrote a $250,000 check to the Johnson campaign. And if anyone on this podcast doesn't know who Phil Knight is, I would be shocked. But Phil Knight is the founder of Nike. Uh, or co-founder, I guess. And I was just looking because I remember I looked up his net worth before a couple of years ago, and it was like 19 billion. So Phil Nett's net worth right now is at four is at 54.3 billion dollars, uh, which, if I'm not mistaken, is very close to the number that Michael Bloomberg was at when he ran for president. And let me uh, and let me just one fun note: according to Oregon campaign finance law, uh, Phil Knight could give. $50 billion <laughs> to Betsy Johnson, and it would be totally legal. Yeah. So I'm saying, right, like, like if the factor here, every, I feel like a lot of people think this race is going to come out to be like, and I was just trying to think of other governor's races that sort of played out like this. And the first one that came to mind was Minnesota when Jesse Ventura uh, or Ventura became Ventura, president yeah. with the reform party, which I had no idea that was the case. That's Pat Buchanan being in the same party as Jesse Ventura's bananas, but the 2000s were crazy. <laughs> uh, but like, you know, is uh, my, my sort of question is like, has Phil Knight had enough? And if Betsy looks like she's viable, is he going to write a hundred million dollar check or a $200 million check? He's not going to write, he would not write he, anywhere near that, but he, he, so I think, so let's no, actually, no, but I'm saying like, he, he has the financial capacity to do that. And that is a real possibility. I feel yeah, like, but, like but a million dollars, like yeah, it could me, happen. It's just what I'm saying. Okay, so so let's talk about that for a second, because Reagan, you probably have some historical memory that I um, am missing here. But Kitzhaber has supported both Democrats, or excuse me, Knight has uh, supported both Democrats and Republicans, including Governor John Kitzhaber in his 2014 reelect, I believe. I believe he gave to Dudley. I believe he gave to Bueller. Um, but in each of those times, I think he's maxed out at like 
Like, I think the most he gave was probably Bueller, and it was like what one or two million. Do you yeah, know? Yeah, so Reagan? he uh, the media has a lot of problems covering campaign finance reform. They're pretty bad at it because they focus on the size of individual checks. And I think the largest check he wrote was 500k but his total investment in Bueller I think was 2.5 in hard dollars and another 2.5 through the Republican Governors Association or something like that so that's five. right mm, okay and that's what I recall um they also pointed out that uh he ba- he backed to Dudley who lost Kitsopper who resigned and Bueller who lost so maybe there's a Phil Knight curse uh happening <laughs> um I don't but, think that's a thing uh, so and you're right, Ben, you were just about to say something about diminishing returns. He doesn't need to write a $100 million check. Oregon's media market is too small. They can't sustain that kind of spending. There aren't enough, there isn't enough ad inventory to buy. But no, I think he definitely it, could on digital, though. I mean, they, oh, I mean, you could, I mean, their consultants yeah. could find a gajillion. But I'm saying it might be, dollars. I'm saying it might be 10 million um, at like, I think so. So actually, Reagan, what, so let, if you're Phil Knight, what do you need to know or see? to determine whether you're going all in. Cause I, I think you, you framed this before we started the episode. It's like $250,000 is like sticking your toe in. It is not saying I'm going to do what it takes to make sure you win this election. Um, so wh- how, how are you thinking about the contribution what it means and what, if you were advising Phil Knight, like what does he need to see? Well, if I'm Phil Knight and I, and I read this DHM poll, I'm saying I'm seeing that the only way is like you said to win is to just basically it's it's flood the zone. It's just to say you won't see any Dem or Republican advertising. We're buying so many ads. But I think that if I were to look at that poll and understand the kind of partisan landscape we live in, I don't see a path for her to win because it basically says she only wins if voters have the perfect information. Like Betsy Johnson becomes the state media and only allows pro <laughs> Betsy Johnson ads. And like, that's just not going to happen. Like, I think we're in a enough of a partisan era and the non-affiliated voters that she's going to rely on aren't going to turn out at the rate she wants. And that even when you add her against, by the way, they only tested her against a generic Dem and a generic right. Republican. So there's no strong affinity for Republicans to their candidate or Democrats to their candidate. And she appears to draw equally from both of them. Right. And then pick up, you know, maybe some swing voters. And so, you know, the only way that matters is if she's taking 15 percent from each each party and then swing voters. But right now it looks like she's taking five to 10 percent. And that's not enough to win. And I, you know, anecdotally, a lot of the big fans of her are people who have worked in the legislature who are kind of pro-business, basically. If you're a pro-business lobbyist, you're a pro-business organization. You don't have to be a Republican, but some of them are, right? They're all the biggest kind of fans of Betsy Johnson, right? And if you walked in and presented them an independent running for governor, they would laugh you out of their office and say, none of my clients, none of my organizations, none of my people are donating to you because independents can't win. But a lot of them are violating those general rules when they talk about Betsy Johnson, you know, and I don't know mm-hmm. if they're advising their clients or their organizations to give to her, but I just don't see Betsy as the type of person that's going to break through the partisanship and be able to, to beat the line, essentially. I think that she is a, the best possible independent candidate, maybe, that you could recruit, uh, but she doesn't have high name ID to start with. And so I don't think most Oregon voters have an affinity for her. And at least the people who were voting for Chris Dudley kind of thought they really liked the basketball player. And so you like, yeah, or Kristoff with the, you know, the smart guy, like 
she has a reputation, but it's actually in a pretty small orbit. And those people mm. broke out. The, the people who have that star power ran outside that orbit, especially with Dudley and with Kristoff kind of, you know, occupying different sections of that type of an orbit. But I don't, I just don't see it. You know, I could be proven wrong and, and, you know, Betsy Johnson as governor would be, would be better than, you know, the generic Democrat, right. As a, as a Republican, but I, I really don't see it as a legitimate thing. Mm. Titus, Titus, what do you think? Uh, it's hard because crazier things have happened, but I mean, also looking at, I just feel like looking at past examples of when something like this has happened, just don't really apply to today just because the, I mean, I just, I, I agree with Reagan. I think, I think that the politics are just so much different. Uh, I'm just really curious to see how the different, if, if this, I mean, let's say it is like a Kotek versus Betsy versus, I don't know, a Drazen of like, what are the specific issues that candidates are going to try to basically brand themselves with uh, to, you know, uh, I, I don't know, because I mean, I've heard I've, I've heard it from both directions from the GOP side. Some people have told me like, oh, with Betsy being in, we have absolutely no chance. And then some people say, you know, this is the godsend basically that we've been waiting it for. Uh, but I feel like that the issues of like what the candidates are running on haven't really actually come to light yet. And uh, I just don't know if like Betsy's going to be able to find something that, as Reagan said, kind of helps her bring above that partisan divide. So I think if she can find whatever that specific issue is. And I mean, honestly, maybe it's COVID stuff and maybe it's like school closures or whatever. Uh, who knows if that will still be issues coming up, you know, by election day. I think that they probably will. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I just don't know if there's like that golden issue that she can sort of run on to be able to pull people from both sides and like really make that the kind of execution point of her campaign. So, uh, but there's a lot of time to go before November. So, you know, who the heck knows what's going to, like some crazy thing could pop up in June, July, August, or whatever, like has happened in campaigns in the past. So uh, I just I think it's still just too early to tell. But there's a reason they call it an October surprise, although October might be too late in Oregon, given our vote by mail system. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we are a little over time. So uh, I think with that, we're going to wrap up. Reagan, you've been down this road before, but you actually do have some some things that you should shout out. Can you first tell us, is the candidate tracker updated and ready for people to look at it? And if so, how can they find it? I updated it as of last week. So you can go to ReaganCanope.net. That's K-N-O-P-P. Uh, and then I have a button on the homepage and in the navigation that can get you the candidate tracker. So I have it updated as of February 4th. So I worked on it on Friday. So it's as up to date as I can get it. Basically, there's one source I didn't go to um, that I need to go back and double check, but I think most of them uh, are pretty much up to date. So yeah, I work pretty hard on this because it's just impossible to find a list of people running for office because they never file when they are declaring and some of them form uh fundraising packs before they actually declare and so you can actually and some of them even change their facebook page names before they announce and so you can actually find out that they're <laughs> running before they, they're ready to announce it but any event um to keep track of that it's on my um newly updated uh website so you can go there and hate my modern design so <laughs> titus well, great. Well, thank you for that, Reagan. Uh, and everybody, thank you so much for listening. I will say, if you've gotten this far listening to the podcast, uh, you have to go check us out on YouTube because Ben literally looks like the guys from Blue's Clues right now. Uh, I, I kid you not. He literally looks exactly like, what was his name again? Steve? 
Steve from Blue's Clues, let the record show, Titus sent me a private message on the Zoom chat saying, hey, hey, let me close. And I thought he was going to say, like, you know, something to Reagan or a shout out of some kind, but it was because I'm wearing a, uh, a blue and green striped shirt that vaguely looks like Steve from Blue's Clues, so... This this is what the people want. <laughs> so uh, we're glad we're glad to give it to you. So yeah, everybody, thanks again. Uh, definitely go check us out on YouTube. As we said, we're posting uh, all the videos on there, and we're hoping to start cutting up important clips at some point of kind of different issues the candidates are talking about and things like that. Definitely information uh, that you should know if you haven't listened to all of our episodes. So go check us out. Go subscribe on YouTube. Uh, make sure to give us five stars if your platform does allow it. We are so close to having sixty-five star. Uh, ratings on Apple Podcasts. So if you have an iPhone, please give us five stars. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, Reagan, give us five stars. Yeah, we know you have like 20 iPhones because you're an Apple fanboy. So the <laughs> Apple Podcast app is true garbage and I would never use it. I use Overcast. It's much better. All right. Well, on well, that with note. That, <laughs> with that unendorsement, uh, everybody, thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next one. See ya.